0: Good morning and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the nation. The Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. We don't normally do this in this segment, but we're making a special exception. For a very special guest out of the gate today, I've got the administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Seema Verma, with me, who has been in Georgia with Senator Leffler, uh a- announcing some big changes uh, to help with the coronavirus. Uh, the administrator joins me. Good morning. How are you?
1: Good morning. Great to be with you.
0: Well, thanks for coming down and and being with Senator Leffler and and making these upgrades, really, and and, and additional funding available for nursing homes and stuff. And, And I'm glad you wanted to come chat about it. And if you wanted to, just with the audience, give them an overview of what's going on.
1: Sure. Well, I'll tell you what, it was a great visit to Atlanta. I had a wonderful opportunity to meet with some of the frontline providers that are doing fantastic work. And it was just a great example to see you know, what we've always said from the very beginning, a federally supported, state-managed, and locally executed response, and uh, it was really uh, extraordinary to see all of this in action. One of the things that we did focus on was nursing homes, and as you know and your audience knows, our nursing homes across the country have just been hit hard, and it, and it makes sense. You've got an elderly population with underlying health conditions living in close quarters. And this has been something that the president has focused on from day one, Um, the restriction on visitors, a lot of uh, focus on giving nursing homes tools, guidelines around infection control. We had provided about $4.9 billion of funding for nursing homes, but just last week the president announced another $5 billion. He's also made it possible for every nursing home across the country to be provided with point-of-care tests. And this is going to be really critical. I think this will be the turning point for nursing homes to be able to test inside the nursing home. That way they have rapid response. They know which healthcare workers are infected, and they can take the proper steps. The other really important thing is that it will create now the pathway for reuniting um, our residents with their families. This has been tremendous stress on residents that have been separated uh, from their families and friends as well as being restricted from activity. So we're very encouraged by this news with the point-of-care tests and the additional funding.
0: Well, along with the tests and the additional funding, so $5 billion. And I I wanted to talk to you about the testing because it it does seem, for example, uh, early on in Florida, uh, the data was presented to Governor DeSantis, who, regardless of all the criticisms the governor may have, something he got really right is... Uh, he locked down nursing homes. Uh, if a patient got infected, moved them out of the nursing home away from everyone else, wouldn't let them go back until they were, were negative. And it, it really does seem like that that early preventative care helped in Florida save nursing home patients in a way that that didn't happen in New York. And part of that is not just testing the patients, but also the staff. And given now that we know that people are so much more infectious before they even have symptoms, uh, what what can be done, what is being done to prioritize making sure the staff are regularly tested?
1: Well, I, well, I agree with you. I think the focus on nursing homes is important because if we look at deaths in this country, almost half of them came from nursing homes or assisted living facilities, some type of a congregate setting for seniors. So that's why the focus on that is so important if we're trying to you know, keep our mortality rates down, keep people out of the hospitals, that early intervention with nursing homes is so critical. You know, some of the problems that we've had with some governors, like in New York, is that they force nursing homes to take people that were COVID positive. And that, I think, is a, is a real mistake. What we're recommending is, you know, I think boots on the ground. We've The president has asked for every nursing home across the country to be surveyed. It's important to have boots on the ground to see what's going on in the nursing home to assess their capacity. What we're finding, and I think some of this came up in the conversation that we had yesterday, was that, you know, a larger nursing home may be able to have a COVID-specific unit. If it's larger, they may have several floors and they can say, all right, this unit is, is going to be all COVID, all the staff especially trained. But there are some smaller nursing homes out there that this, is, this creates more of a challenge. And so forcing nursing homes to take COVID-positive patients um, has led to disastrous results in New York and something that we want to make very clear shouldn't happen. Nursing homes can take COVID-positive patients, but they have to be prepared to isolate them and to make sure that they can take the proper precautions to avoid the spread to other patients.
0: What additional uh, training and support is um, the, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services doing for these nursing homes?
1: One of the things that we're doing is what we have something called quality improvement organizations, and they actually provide on-the-ground technical assistance. So they will go into the nursing home. They're not there to find them. They're not surveyors, but they're really there to be problem solvers, to, to take a look. They do an assessment to figure out where the nursing home is and then work with them. And we're doing that across the country. They're going in nursing homes. They're providing Um, You know, even remote help if they don't want somebody in the facility. The other option is we're just doing online training. And one of the things that the president talked about in his announcement is we're going to be putting out a national certification program around um, COVID prevention in nursing homes. And that's something we're going to want every nursing home to participate in. And what we're finding is that nursing homes are at different levels. You know, some of them, especially the ones that we talked to in Georgia, they're affiliated with hospitals. And when they're affiliated with hospitals, they're using what we'd say hospital-level infection control guidelines, and they have fared better. And other nursing homes are even struggling to implement the federal guidelines. And so that's something that we continue to work on. It's clearly not been enough for us to just put out guidelines, recommendations, and requirements. But uh, we're now moving to a phase where we're trying to work with those nursing homes that have demonstrated that they're having difficulty. And it's not just about being punitive. You know, we can put fines out, and which we do, we do penalties. But, you know, our job and our goal is to keep Uh, these residents safe, and so we want to take every step that we can, even if it means, you know, like I said, just helping them and assisting them to implement the guidelines.
0: I want to circle back to testing real quick, because given a lot of the delays that are are out there now, and I know there are some rapid rapid tests, is there a priority mechanisms in in the expanded testing to to try to help them get access to the rapid tests as opposed to those that, that may have a delay where you've got someone in there who happens to be infected and they just don't know it yet? And I mean, if there's a delay in testing, that could be a problem.
1: Yeah, well, that's why I think that this move uh, by putting these point-of-care tests in the nursing home is important for a few reasons. Number one, it's going to help the nursing home. We've recommended, and we will now require nursing homes to test their staff once a week. Then that way, they know, know which staff are infected, and they can take the appropriate precautions. We have heard about testing delays. We're not happy on the federal level with the turnaround time in testing, and we think that moving the testing for nursing homes out of the high-throughput labs and directly in the nursing homes will actually alleviate some of the uh, barriers or some of the backlog that we're seeing in the commercial labs. So I think it's not only going to help nursing homes, but it's also going to help you know, other people get their results quicker and faster. The other thing the FDA put out yesterday is just more information about what we call pooling. And this is a way where you essentially take five, like let's say it's somebody in a household and you take everybody's sample and you put it in the machine. So instead of running, let's say there's four people in the household, you're just running one test. And if one of them comes back positive, then you can repeat the test. But it just allows for the test to go faster and quicker by uh, being able to pool samples together.
0: Well, that's useful. That is useful. Well, listen, I I know you've got a heart out here and and I thank you for stopping by this morning and for doing this. I know in a lot of people, I have conversations so much with friends now who either their parents or their grandparents are in nursing homes and they're really concerned about this stuff. So I appreciate what you guys are doing to try to uh, boost resources for nursing homes and, and get some more training in there.
1: Well, thank you. And I think the one thing that we can all do to keep nursing home residents safe is to adhere to the federal guidelines about wearing masks, washing our hands. And keeping socially distant that actually will have a big impact on nursing homes because if we reduce the rate of transmission in the community um, that will reduce the potential for it getting into the nursing home so just encourage everybody to take those precautions
0: definitely thank you very much for stopping by uh seema verma is the administrator for the centers for uh or center for medicare and medicaid services she had a, a heart out there actually they're they're on tour of nursing homes uh but wanted to stop by We were able to work her in, uh, the big takeaway here again, though, five, uh, additional $5 billion. Uh, relief funding for nursing homes. It's going to go to expanded testing capacity within nursing homes of the staff in nursing homes and additional upgrades for nursing homes to be able to help them contain and control the virus and keep people safe and additional uh, protocols for nursing homes. There will be fines and and could be punishment if they're not followed. But in particular, they're going to use part of that $5 billion to train nursing home staff so that they have better healthcare protocols, uh, regarding COVID 19 as the virus continues to change. And in fact, there is, uh, even as we speak now, new data and new research coming out about how the virus has changed. Remember all of the, the, the February, March, April, uh, wear latex gloves and, and be careful because you can touch surfaces and it, it could live on the surface for 48 to 72 to 96 hours. Well, They're starting to change all of that data again as well. I'll tell you how they've changed it when we come back. It is Eric Erickson here. Welcome back. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. If you want to be a part of the program, let's talk about how some of this uh, has changed. Some of the research has changed. There's actually an article in The Atlantic essentially calling it uh, sanitation theater uh is is what we're seeing everyone's scrubbing stuff down now you need to be careful here be careful because this is nuanced a little bit. everybody wants to make everything very cut and dry black and white there there's some gray here. if you're going to the grocery store, you know for example, I go to Publix uh my beloved Publix <laughs> and uh you go in and they've got a kid who's wiping down the buggies at the front particularly, Uh, sanitizing the handles and everywhere you might touch the buggy, not everything in it, but uh, the places you might touch. And that's good uh, because the virus can live on the surface for some time. And you don't want someone who wasn't wearing a mask who might've coughed or sneezed in their hand and then touched their buggy. And then you get it and it's on your hand uh, and and the like, and uh, you, you get the virus. You don't want that, but in general, they're now saying they've gone back and looked at the research about the survivability on surfaces. And yes, the virus can survive on uh, hard surfaces for a period of time. But uh, the researchers use such an, um, such an, a concentrated dose of the virus that more and more the scientists believe that's not realistic in the real world of what you would get. Uh, it's a laboratory setting. And so they're thinking more and more is that the sanitation is good and please do wash your hands consistently and use hand sanitizer. But the odds are you're going to to not get it from touching things. Where you're going to get the virus, and this is important, is from the air. That's why increasingly they're saying use masks because increasingly the data shows that it's not, you need to understand something. Wearing a mask has nothing to do with you getting the virus from from an infected person. If an infected person is not wearing a mask and you're wearing a mask, the odds are you're gonna get the virus. Let me say that again. If an infected person is not wearing a mask and you are wearing a mask, you're probably gonna get the virus, but if the infected person is wearing a mask and you're wearing a mask, you're probably not going to get the virus. So how do we know who's infected and who's not infected? Well, you presume everyone is infected. And so everyone wears a mask and that radically reduces it. Listen, it, it, there's, there's not a coincidence, I don't think, that you've got about 80% of people now in Arizona, Florida, in texas in georgia are starting to wear masks Uh, the the surveys the general surveys and you know ipsos and and reuters and some of the others they go out and they do these surveys and 70 to 80 percent of people are now wearing masks in public and uh it's been going on now for some time and we've crested and turned the corner uh, there does appear to be real-world data out there that uh, our changes in behavior, including more people staying home and people wearing masks, actually is working. Um, but the big issue is that all of the, the uh, sanitation theater that you're seeing, as people are now describing it, really is sanitation theater. That there's some good on airplanes and the like. The sanitation and stuff that they're doing is very good. I know on Delta, they are between flights now. They're coming on board with sprayers. Uh, that spray, uh, antimicrobial spray that gets in the air and also all over everything to clean. uh, And then they're giving you sanitation wipes when you get on board and and, uh, hand sanitizer to be able to keep yourself clean. And and that sort of stuff actually is good. Um, But again, the big issue is we don't know who has the virus because most people who get it don't have symptoms and they're still contagious. And so the the sanitation of surfaces is not nearly as important as the air quality. So if you're on a Delta flight, for example, they will tell you when you push back from the gate about how safe it is that the the air on these Delta Airbus flights that they've started flying, by the way, is actually uh, more sanitized than most uh, surgical uh, surgery centers within hospitals. The air recirculates every, the the air, the the new, the, the new intake of air comes in every 13 to 15 seconds and it's sucked down to the ground. So the virus, instead of spreading out, is pulled straight down to the ground and then out the vents. Uh, and there's HEPA filtration and all that. So, uh, great, great, uh, protocols. If you're flying on Delta, by the way, there's a general consensus. Let me just, since this show is, is mostly in Georgia, And Delta is a Georgia-based airline. Let me just commend them one more time for uh, what they're doing. Uh, They are now universally regarded as perhaps in the United States, the most sanitized, cleanest airline to fly right now. The odds of you getting the virus on a Delta flight are pretty slim to none, given the protocols that they're putting in place to be be able to keep you safe on board while flying. But this is the big issue, is the data keeps changing and the media keeps doing a terrible job of updating the data. The media just moves on with the data and doesn't explain how the data changed, which has made a lot of people skeptical. And that skepticism is bearing out in odd places as well, including the virus. And I want to spend a little bit of time on um, the, the conspiracies over the vaccine and the spread of the virus. Because, man, the conspiracies are coming out of the woodwork over this virus. And, by the way, I, I'm on the side of there's legit concern about the viruses, we, about the vaccine uh, that we need to talk about. Right now, though, I want to do my bit for public service around the nation. Some of you, perhaps, are getting seeds in the mail. And you have no idea why you're getting seeds in the mail. There's actually a story out there. CBS News is doing a story on it. Mystery seeds from China are landing in Americans' mailboxes. This is happening all over the country. It's happening in Georgia. Agricultural officials in multiple states issued warnings Monday about unsolicited shipments of foreign seeds and advised people not to plant them. In Kentucky... The state agriculture department was notified that several residents received unsolicited seed packets sent by mail that appear to have originated in China. The types of seeds are unknown and could be harmful, stressing that they should not be planted. We don't know what they are and we cannot risk any harm whatsoever to agricultural production in the United States. We have the safest, most abundant food supply in the world and we need to keep it that way. Anyone in Kentucky receiving packages of foreign or unfamiliar seeds should contact the state agriculture department immediately. Same applies in Georgia, by the way. The Georgia Department of Agriculture put out the same notice. At this point in time, we don't know enough information to know if it's a hoax, a prank, an internet scam, or an act of agricultural bioterrorism. Unsolicited seeds could be invasive and introduce unknown diseases to local plants, harm livestock, or threaten our environment. Residents of at least eight states have now received packages of seeds that appear to have originated in China with officials in each urging people not to plant them. Reuters said the USDA confirmed a statement it's working with the Department of Homeland Security and state officials to stop any illegal seeds entering the country. Now, you're laughing at this. You're thinking maybe it's marijuana or something. No, so... You know kudzu? Those of you who are in the South, you know kudzu. If you're in the North, you don't know kudzu. Kudzu is invasive and takes over everything. Kudzu was introduced into the country during the Dust Bowl of the 1930s as a ground cover plant to prevent erosion. The problem is that uh, kudzu in Asia behaves differently from kudzu in the United States. And kudzu in the United States is invasive and takes over everything. And it is almost impossible to get rid of because of the way it spreads. And this has happened numerous times in the past where invasive species have been introduced that take over and ruin uh, domestic crops or spread uh, uh, diseases. They're susceptible to fungus that then mutates and gets on other plants. And they're worried about this. Uh, In North Carolina, multiple people have uh, received the seeds. In Georgia and New York as well, people have received these seeds. And some idiot you know is going to plant them to see what it is. Uh, And it's, it's not wise to do. If you randomly get seed packets in the mail, you should not be planting your random seed packets if you don't know what they are. You uh, don't want to set off an invasive species in the United States that starts killing off corn crops or something like that. That would be awful bad, people, so please be smart, be careful, be responsible, and if you didn't order seeds and you get them in the mail, be careful. Um, Y'all, I hate to do this to you, um but because I'm getting friends of mine asking me, and I know they're listening to the program, uh, um, Have you seen the... Okay, I, I, I need to warn you first. Uh, I... I, I, I uh, I don't want to I don't I don't want to talk about this but I'm afraid I have to cuz I've gotten already about a dozen emails and text messages on this. Have you seen the woman uh the doctor uh who is in front of the Lincoln Memorial black lady who's talking uh I think Donald Trump Jr. uh retweeted the video of her. She's saying people don't need to wear masks and uh, she's got other claims y'all um <sighs> okay. The, the uh, I just uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, I got to do this. The the woman in the video is a doctor from Texas. She believes that many many uh female ailments come from um <sighs> Demon semen. There, I said it. I'm sorry, but you just, you just, you just need to know. Apparently, there's there's a report out on this woman. She she has some interesting claims. Alien DNA is currently used in in medicine. Uh, she she is a pediatrician. She's a religious minister. Uh, She claims that gynecological problems like cyst and endometriosis are, in fact, caused by people having sex in their dreams with demons and witches. And that alien DNA is currently used in medical treatment, and scientists are cooking up vaccines to prevent people from being religious. Uh, And um, she said the government is run in part not by humans, but by reptilians and other aliens. She was at the Supreme Court, I'm sorry, not the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, She also has said that uh, she's hung her hat on hydroxychloroquine, which I actually think there is plenty of studies to uh, correlate with. But then she also, um, well, has some other things, uh, including saying that Facebook was, or Jesus Christ was going to destroy Facebook uh, if her crazy videos weren't put back online and... um, Well, let's just say, let me just read you this from the article. (laughs) Gosh, I can't believe I'm having to go here. In sermons posted on YouTube and articles on her website, Emmanuel claims that medical issues like endometriosis, cysts, infertility, and impotence are caused by sex with spirit husbands and spirit wives, a phenomenon Emmanuel described essentially as witches and demons having sex with people in a dream world. They are responsible for serious gynecological problems. We call them all kinds of names, endometriosis. We call them molar pregnancies. We call them fibroids. We call them cysts, but most of them are evil deposits from the spirit world. They are responsible for miscarriages, impotence, men that can't get it up. Uh, It it is a a sort of demonology of Nephilim, Um, the biblical character she claims exists in demonic spirits and lust after dream sex with humans causing all matter of real health problems and financial ruin. Emmanuel blames real-life ailments such as fibroids and cysts uh, stem from demonic uh, semen after demon dream sex and activity. She claims affects many women. This is the woman who uh, people on the right they're now circulating her video about her hydroxychloroquine and masks not working. And I just need you to take that under advisement. Now, I really want to be done talking about the virus today, but before I can be done, we do need to talk about the. The, the the uh Bill Gates hoax I actually got a call on my evening show last night from a guy who really has bought in to the Bill Gates hoax you know Bill Gates is building a bunch of manufacturing facilities uh Bill Gates favors sterilization of the world and Bill Gates uh on a video released it classified. Briefing of the CIA advised them on a vaccine to cure people of religion. This vaccine would shut down the part of the brain that makes people religious fundamentalists, and it would be a way to stop terrorism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, So here's the deal. In fact, I got the video was sent to me by a listener who didn't like that I was skeptical of the Bill Gates conspiracy claims, and the video is not actually of Bill Gates. Some of you may have seen this. In uh, 2005, it is alleged that Bill Gates – was doing an interview with the CIA and advised them on the creation of a vaccine to cure religious fundamentalism. This woman uh, who people are circulating the video of, this doctor from Texas, uh, a native of Cameroon, also believes that the government, through the CIA, is inventing an injection of vaccine to cure you of religion. The, the video is actually not of Bill Gates. It was only edited to be Bill Gates this year. The video has been around since 2011. There was a guy doing a film called Funvax, a uh, Fundamentalist Vaccine, uh, a supposed uh, documentary. It was a movie that was going to be designed to be like a, a documentary, uh, arguing that the government was trying to cure people of religion by vaccinating them. And the project, uh, several clips of the film were made in production to try to get fundraising uh, to raise money to produce the rest of the film. It did not work, but those clips got out on the Internet. Uh, There are high resolution clips available that you can go find that show the person uh, supposedly advising the CIA very clearly is not Bill Gates. But the lower resolution stuff that's most common online and that's circulating by people uh, is not Bill Gates, but looks like Bill Gates because the grain is is fuzzy and he kind of sounds like Bill Gates. And so people are saying, oh, here's Bill Gates advising the CIA in 2005 about vaccines and, and how it can cure people of religious fundamentalism and, and the like. Um no, it's not Bill Gates, and this is a conspiracy theory. Bill Gates is a billionaire, and unlike many of the billionaires out there, including Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett and the like, uh, Bill Gates actually takes an interest in healthcare. care. Uh, yes, he he is worried about population. Yes, he supports abortion. But no, this vaccine is not going to cause people to become sterile. Uh, what Bill Gates decided to do with his own money is he should be commended for it, not condemned for it. He wants to build a bunch of manufacturing facilities that AstraZeneca, Pharma, uh, Pfizer, uh, Moderna, and the other pharmaceutical companies can use to manufacture their vaccines at rapidly at scale instead of using their existing facilities so that we can get a vaccine produced for the whole world as quickly as possible. And in Bill Gates is thinking, if one of the vaccines turns out not to be quite right, we can shut down that facility, repackage it to produce the winning vaccines. Uh, he's making no money off of this. He's not being a part of the patent. Uh, now, the, the tie in conspiracy here is that Gates and Anthony Fauci apparently have a relationship, and Anthony Fauci is on all sorts of patents, and clearly Anthony Fauci is profiting off COVID-19 and is going to to now profit off the vaccine, having manufactured COVID-19 to get rich off the vaccine. You see how this works. Everybody has a money angle, and there's always some Gnostic knowledge that if you come into the conspiracy, the world will be revealed to you. And 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 in this case, it is Anthony Fauci has on all sorts of patents and clearly uh, produced COVID-19 from a lab in North Carolina, got it into China through the military, was spread in China, came back to the United States, and now he's uh, helping produce the, the vaccine and he and Bill Gates are going to make a ton of money. Believe it or not, that's the prevailing conspiracy. Now, people will quibble with it and nuance with it, but that, that that's the general summation of it. Here's the thing. Anthony Fauci is is uh, head of one of the National Institutes of Allergy and, and whatever part of the Institutes of Health. US patent law requires that individuals be named on patents. And so there are patents out there that Anthony Fauci's name is on because he is the head of the Institute. And as the head of the Institute, his name gets on them, but federal law prohibits him from profiting off those patents. Uh, patent law requires an individual be on it. So the government requires that the head of the agency have his name assigned to the patent, but then he is prohibited from actually uh, profiting off the patent. In fact, Anthony Fauci is one of the higher paid federal employees because since he is a researcher who in the private sector could make millions off these patents, they try to pay him more to compensate him for the loss of money that he would make in the private sector to keep him inside the public sector. But he doesn't actually make money off the patents and yet people are are circulating these things. And, And by the way, all of this stuff is easily disproven if you just do a little research and think about it, but people would rather take the word of some YouTube video Grainy YouTube video than actually research it themselves. I'm amazed at the number of smart people out there who can believe the craziest stuff, and a lot of it has more to do with they want to believe than anything else. But still, uh, there are issues out there, and and I'm 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 doing my best to debunk this. I was actually floored yesterday, and it typically, you know, here's the thing: it's also younger people these days who tend to buy into these conspiracy theories. It just kind of makes sense to them in, in some way I don't quite understand. I don't understand the mind of those who buy into all these conspiracy theories. Everybody's got a conspiracy theory. Everybody's got one. You all know mine. I say it all the time. I, I, I'm convinced that the Chinese are in a conspiracy with some members of the media paying them under the table to to take China's side. I'm convinced of it. There's no evidence of it. It is an absolute conspiracy in my head, but I think I'm right. So I, I do get that aspect of it with other people. But some of this stuff is easily debunked. And you don't even have to take Bill Gates's word for it. You just actually follow the money as opposed to claiming you follow the money. Or same with Fauci and the patents. But now I need to say this. I'm concerned about the speed of the vaccine and I don't think you're crazy if you're concerned about the speed of the vaccine. Hopefully within a period of a few months, we'll
2: be able to get a signal to know whether it actually is effective in preventing infection with the coronavirus. It's, it's extraordinary uh, circumstance, John, because this is the fastest that we have ever gone from the identification of a new virus, uh, doing the sequence, getting a vaccine, and going into a phase three trial for efficacy. Yeah. And we've done it by increased technologies that have really been transforming the way we do vaccine trials.
0: Y'all, I- I'm I'm as skeptical, I think, as the rest of y'all on the speed of the vaccine. I I don't think that you have, I I don't think that you are wrong to be worried about the spread of the, the, or the, the fear from the vaccine. I don't think you are. It is rushed. Now, here's Francis Collins, the National Institutes of Health director, on this as well. This is a very significant
3: milestone.
4: Dr. Francis Collins is the director of the NIH.
3: This is the first of several vaccines that are going to be coming along quite quickly. So people are going to be hearing a lot about this.
0: And here's the vice president.
3: The FDA uh, cleared the way today for what will be uh, the first phase three clinical trial in the United States. Eighty nine sites across America. With up to 30,000 participants, will begin uh, their first phase three clinical trial on a vaccine uh, for the coronavirus.
0: I'm going to leave that there because the, the the audio is kind of low. There just isn't a way to to boost that one. Uh, but essentially, we're going into phase three now ahead of schedule, more rapidly. I get the concern, but let me give you the punchline on this. There's increasing concern on the left. About the vaccine. And you know, uh, on the left, there's a lot of hostility on the left from a lot of people who are skeptical of vaccines in general. And they've become increasingly skeptical of this vaccine because they're skeptical of the president and so they believe that the president is rushing a vaccine that's not heavily vetted uh because the president wants to win re-election and the best way to stop that is to not get the vaccine on the right there's actually a uh, part of it I I think is a lack of understanding of development of vaccines and and what the side effects can be from vaccines and how they're testing the vaccines and and I get that and uh, I, there is so much public education that needs to be done. I don't question anyone who is skeptical or hesitant of this vaccine. If I could be a part of this thirty thousand person trial, I would. Frankly, I, I would gladly sign up to to be one of the people who tested. I it, when the vaccine comes out, I will probably get it. But I don't blame anyone who's skeptical. I don't blame anyone who's hesitant because they're they are rushing. Now, I think there's science on their side for rushing, but they're doing a terrible job of explaining it. And if they're doing that bad of a job of explaining it, just imagine uh, the the doubts people face. Now, the, the irony here is the number of people on the left who are skeptical solely because... The president is involved with it. Let me let me play you before I get out of here on break. Let, let me let me play you this audio from CNN. We do have some breaking news that has to do with this. We understand that the very first phase three trial of a coronavirus vaccine in the United States has just begun with people actually getting the very first shots of this vaccine as part of phase three. Uh, let's go straight to Elizabeth Cohen to give us the details on this. She's in Savannah, Georgia, where this Moderna trial is going on.
4: Elizabeth. John, this is truly a historic moment. We watched as the first patient in the United States got a shot as part of a phase three clinical trial for a COVID vaccine. This is really amazing. I mean, we didn't start working on this vaccine until January. So just seven months later, to have someone getting a shot in a phase three trial is truly remarkable. Of course, everyone's fingers are crossed. We hope that this leads to a vaccine. But that's why we're doing the clinical trial. There's a possibility that this might not work. Of course, everyone hopes that it does. They will eventually be giving shots to 30,000 people for this Moderna vaccine. Half of them will get the actual vaccine. Half of them will get a placebo that really does nothing. And in the end, they'll see what happens to those two groups. Is there any difference? They hope there is a difference and that the vaccine protects people from getting sick or dying from COVID-19.
0: The placebo is going to be interesting to see, and uh, it'll be interesting to see if the vaccine does any good. We, we really don't know yet, and then the AstraZeneca one with Oxford seems to actually, they, they, it looks more positive, but there's still a lot we don't know, and because there's a lot we don't know, there's a lot of misinformation, because there's a lot of misinformation, there's increased skepticism. I don't blame people for waiting on this. I It is cool to me to see that they're able to put all this together this fast, And get it out there, but it is also a little bit alarming. And so I I just want you to understand your skepticism is warranted in this. I think it'll be okay, but no one can say for sure. And you have legitimate skepticism, but your skepticism should not be that the president wants to win, win re-election. So he's made them cut corners to rush this, which is the skepticism on the left right now. And it's completely unfounded. Coming up later, I talked to Congressman Doug Collins about the Attorney General testifying today before Congress. It's actually William Barr. This is his second go-round as Attorney General of the United States, and he's never actually testified before the House of Representatives before, so it'll be new for him today. It's going to be dog and pony show, and Doug Collins and I talked about it. Uh, I want to talk to him about that and some of the attacks that he is facing out there right now. I just I got this email during commercial break. Yesterday, there was a big story on how Kamala Harris is is largely out of the running to be Joe Biden's vice presidential pick. By the way, I'm sorry. I didn't play this audio yesterday. Um, This is Joe Biden.
2: My name's Joe Biden. I'm a Democratic candidate for the United States Senate. Look me over
0: (laughs) The debates, y'all cannot write off this race, nor can I, until we get to the debates. Chris Wallace sat for an hour with the president and now wants an interview with with Joe Biden. In our interview last week with President Trump, he questioned whether his democratic opponent Joe Biden could handle a
2: similar encounter. Well, this week we asked the Biden campaign for an interview and they said the former vice president was not available. We'll keep asking every week. My name's Joe Biden. I'm a democratic candidate for the United States Senate. Look me over, if you're-
0: So Joe Biden has put Chris Dodd in charge of his task force to find a vice president. Joe uh, Chris Dodd was notorious for sex sandwiches with Ted Kennedy. You're wondering what on earth? I know someone this happened to. She has told me the story. She was a lobbyist. And she was at a bar with friends one night and was recognized by Ted Kennedy and uh, Chris Dodd, who were there together. They were notorious for going out and getting drunk together and and then abusing uh, female lobbyists. She was literally put between them. They came along either side of her, shoved themselves into her, and steered her out the door with the weight of their bodies, pressing to her and got her into their car to take her back to their apartment to have their way with her. She, of course, was completely freaked out, didn't know what to do. By the time they got to the apartment, the driver, uh, they had passed out drunk in the back of the car. And the driver told her that that happened more often than not, that she should climb over into the front seat and get out the door, that they would not remember. And they did not. I have heard this from the person it happened to who attests that it is true, and I believe her, this is a very common story in Washington, D.C. And in a Me Too age, having Chris Dodd in, in uh, running Joe Biden's operation to find a VP pick is very interesting and, and also very tone deaf. Uh, and, and what is also very funny about it is that Kamala Harris prosecuted a number of Chris Dodd's very good friends. So I don't think that's going to go over well. So all of that is to say I get an email this morning. Would you like to speak with former former senior advisor to Biden and chief transparency officer of Transparent Business, Movila about why Kamala Harris is the current frontrunner for VP and the current support for Trump among black and Latino voters. The Hill reports Biden is leaning towards Kamala Harris for his VP pick. This comes at the same time, the Washington Post claims that support for President Trump among black and Latino voters has plateaued at 10% and 30% respectively. While these numbers are low, several Democratic strategists are worried that Biden will need even more support among black and Latino voters to win. So, it, it, reporting comes out of the Politico that basically Kamala Harris is done. You've got the Botox scandal with Kamala Harris coming out as well. But the Hill has someone to say, "Hey, no, she's really the she's really the front runner." No, she's not. Man, this is uh, hungry for media attention. I'm sure. Uh, no, Kamala Harris. Maybe she will be. Let, let, let's not let's not say she won't, but. Um, let's also not say she will. When we come back, there's revision to the stimulus plan and Doug Collins to talk about Bill Barr testifying before Congress. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the nation, but really here in Georgia, because I love y'all. The phone number is... 877-97 Eric, eight seven seven nine seven three seven four two five 973 7425 William Barr, the Attorney General of the United States of America, is uh, testifying before the United States House of Representatives today. You know, he was the um, he, he was the attorney general for George H.W. Bush. He's only the second person to ever be attorney general for uh, more than one president, and he never had to testify before the House. Uh, during George H. W. Bush's tenure, so this is a first for him. The Democrats, of course, are turning it into a spectacle, and I want to play for you a conversation I had uh, late yesterday with Congressman Doug Collins, who had been the ranking uh, member of the Judiciary Committee until he decided to start a Senate bid. Uh, and I, I just, I got to play you this audio of our conversation where we talk about William Barr before the House and a few other things as well. I got a special guest uh, right now coming up tomorrow the House Democrats have decided to call the Attorney General of the United States on the carpet for a political grandstand grilling joining me to discuss that uh, our own congressman here in Georgia congressman Doug Collins welcome Hey how you doing I'm great. Thanks for doing this today. Uh, To kick it off, I got to read you something. I I really, I genuinely did fall out laughing when I read this. This is the Associated Press is running their biography, so to speak, of of William Barr and the run up to this, and and they include this. Uh, Only one other attorney general has served two non consecutive presidents: John Crittenden, who held the job under Presidents William Henry Harrison and John Tyler, and later Millard Fillmore. In the 19th century, Barr's first stint was under President George H.W. Bush. His first encounter with Bush, then director of the CIA, was Barr was working for the Intelligence Agency's Legislative Council while attending law school. Barr would recall... Someone asked then-Director Bush of the intelligence agency a question, and he leaned back and said, how the hell do I answer this one? I whispered the answer, he gave it, and I thought, who is this guy? He listens to legal advice. Now here's how the Associated Press (laughs) interprets that anecdote. They add helpfully this sentence, clearly William Barr liked having the ear of the powerful. (laughs) As opposed to being a lawyer who likes someone who would actually listen to their advice. (laughs) <laughs> they, I mean, they're
1: out to get this guy.
3: Oh, my. Well, it, it's like a lot of people. They, they don't understand lawyers until they, want, until they need one, and then they, then they try to do that. But it, it, that's, just, that's just another hit. That is a subtlety hit on this administration, especially uh, Bill Barr. And I'll take it a step further. Jerry Nadler, who is uh, completely becoming unhinged in many ways, I mean, he is, he is denying that Antifa and these others are in Portland. He called it a myth. Just right. yesterday, I mean, it's like amazing. But but there's something oddly personal about this obsession with Bill Barr. I mean, it, it, it seems to dominate all of his conversations. He's, he, you know, Jerry Nadler's now tried to associate, you know, Bill Barr with the destruction of the Western Hemisphere. If you ask him, <laughs> um, because every it's amazing. You know, it's like little green creatures everywhere, and here's Bill Barr. And um, so tomorrow is just gonna be a it's gonna be a show. It's just, it's it's gonna be a joke. Um, but I tell you what, some of us have some honest questions for Bill Barr because he's actually helped some of us who have been you know, uncovering a lot of the stuff that had been going on in the corrupt DOJ under Obama, and he's actually helped us. So I'm looking forward to at least from our side some productive conversations. I'm looking for nothing but a sham show from the other side.
0: Well, it, I, I got to say, uh, William Barr is one of my favorite uh, members of the cabinet. I love the – he reminds me to a degree, and, and I I don't want anyone to take offense at this comparison, but it, back in the day when, when Donald Rumsfeld would go up to Congress and just wouldn't take anything uh, from the people who were grandstanding and would just, just throw it right back in their face with facts. And William Barr, you can tell, just goes up there, realizes he's being surrounded by a bunch of people playing for the cameras, and just devastates mm-hmm. them just by giving them the facts. And we got a lot of questions about who these people are in Portland, Oregon, who 57 days later are still running and even the NAACP is saying it's a bunch of white kids who've hijacked George Floyd's memory to do something they're not even sure of.
3: Oh, it is. Well, and, it's not, and, and the concerning part, it's not just the Seattle and the, quote, love fest that broke up in the, in the chop zone. Of course, now we know that all to be false. And now it's important for 50-something days. But just remember, just a couple of nights ago in Atlanta, the ICE uh, facility was broken into and vandalized. So this, is, this is something that is, we've got to get a handle on what we're doing here And I think it's coming from this sort of permissive attitude uh, that we see from some of these mayors and and some of these other officials. They're saying that they're too scared to call wrong, wrong, and vandalism and criminal destruction is wrong. Civil, peaceful protest is what is valid and and needs to be, but you can't have the two here. And so when you look at this Bill Barr, and I've been able to to meet with him not only in in hearings, but I I, was seeing but privately and also watched him interact with the, the administration and with the president. He is the same individual you see everywhere. There's not a different Bill bar for the camera. There's not a different Bill bar in a private meeting. There's not a different Bill bar, you know, in an official cabinet meeting. And, and I think that serves us as American citizens very well.
0: Yeah, I would agree with you, Congressman. One one of the things I like about Bill Barr, and you get to this kind of he's he's the same wherever he is. The left always says Donald Trump surrounded by people who who don't have experience that they're out of their league. And here is the man who you would think you know, this guy's an adult in the room. He advised George H. W. Bush. You would want this guy on your side advising you. And it seems to me the left hates him because he is so competent.
3: Uh, That's exactly right. I mean, look, he's going before a committee that last year brought when he wouldn't attend because they were trying to strong-arm him, and we were fighting back against these uh, questions from staff and all this. You know, they brought in chicken. They brought in fried chicken, seco, and this. And he just didn't care. He said, I'm not going to be pushed into something I'm not going to do. And I can tell you, Eric, and I can tell your listeners that I've watched him interact with the president. I've watched him interact with me. And he will have his own opinion and he's not afraid to share it. And even if it differs from everybody else in the room, but yet he'll say, okay, I don't agree with this, but what can we get done? And I think that's the sign of a mature you know, person who's very secure in their own skin, but also one who, that the left can't stand because they can't manipulate him. He stands for principles. He'll articulate those principles, and they don't, he's not going to be just you know, rushed over by the latest craze or fad that the left won't promote.
0: Well, you know, Congressman, I, I need to shift gears on you real quick um, because I, I've got a rule I, I decided to employ on this show, uh, you and your opponent for the Senate race. I like you both. I, I don't want to have people come on this program and, and trash one or the other, but I was a lawyer for six years and I represented uh, drug dealers and burglars and car thieves because I represented indigent clients who couldn't afford a lawyer and I did it as part of practice in law and I I'm personally offended that you, who also did that, representing indigent clients who otherwise couldn't afford a lawyer when they're entitled to one under the Constitution, uh, might be subject to attack for doing your bit to defend the Constitution.
3: Uh, it is it is very offensive. And what it basically says is those who can afford an attorney get the benefits of the Constitution. And that's not what it, it tells. And what's even more offensive, frankly, Eric, and I'll just leave it at this is when you show pictures of people I supposedly represented, you ought to at least have checked to see if I actually represented them and not just put them on there for, you know, uh, scare purposes or the color of their skin. And that's bad. That's, indigent defense is deserving of a defense. And most of the, almost every one of them go to jail, but they deserve somebody to stand with them. And I know your theological background. Someone once asked me, because you know I came from a pastoral background. I left the pastorate to become a lawyer. And someone once asked me, they said, Doug, how can you be a pastor and represent people who have done you know these terrible things or been accused of these terrible things and i asked them and this is from my faith perspective i heard somebody say this one time and i agreed with it and i've sort of made it my own and that is if, if from my faith perspective if christ stood with me on my worst day how can i not stand with someone else that he created on their worst day and you know that's just you, we've got that into our constitutional understanding and we've got to keep that up
0: yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I um, w- wanted to give you a chance to respond on that. Listen, thank you so much for stopping by, and good luck tomorrow running circles yet again around the, the people <laughs> on the other side. <laughs> You'll have some great help there with William Barr talking.
3: We'll do it. We'll do it. It's always good to talk with you. Take care.
0: That was my conversation with Congressman uh, Doug Collins from yesterday. Bill Barr now testifying, the the testimony getting underway, uh, and you know the man really is William Barr is smarter than pretty much anyone on that committee, and it's going to be he's very no nonsense. It's going to be interesting to watch him uh, put up with those people. But I, I want to come back to the, this this end piece with Collins. I, I'm actually supporting Kelly Loeffler. I, I will I'll vote for Kelly Loeffler in November. Uh, because, as I have always said, as much as I like Congressman Collins, uh, I believe the governor had the right to pick someone, and the governor chose Leffler. And I will support the governor in that. Um, but I genuinely like Doug Collins. I genuinely like Doug Collins. And I think it is problematic for Leffler that when I drive around Georgia, and, you know, my family, we like to take drives out into the countryside. And we we do this a lot. We just get in the car in the evening and we want to go look for deer. And so we'll go find uh, country roads with very few houses uh, that are mostly in in forest or farm and we'll look for deer. It's amazing how many you can see. And I see Doug Collins signs in people's yards. I don't see Kelly Leftler signs in people's yards. And that should be worrying for a lot of people out there, uh, that there there aren't signs out there uh, for Leffler. They're are they're, they're in the right of way, uh, but they're not actually in um they're not actually in people's yards. And a sign in someone's yard. Is actually worth paying attention to. A sign and a right-of-way is not. And a lot of people go out and they try to win the sign games. When you're running campaigns, one of the things you do is is you, you try to run the, the the race. Now I was I ran a race for a friend of mine. It's actually the last campaign. I used to do campaign management. The last race I ever ran was for a friend of mine running for superior court uh, in Middle Georgia. And one of the things we decided to do, it was it was more money. But we thought it was worth it because nobody was doing it. Is instead of having uh, your standard yard sign, we went with a diamond. And his his logo was a diamond shape. And man, that sign stood out. Uh, it was it was slightly bigger. It was a little more expensive, uh, but it stood out everywhere. You, you all those square rectangle signs with all the similar color schemes. They all kind of blend together. But this big diamond sign. Uh, stood out, uh, and, and we organized, and we wanted everybody to put them in their yards. Organized a date certain. We would give, we distributed the yard signs. We kept a list of people who all wanted the yard signs, and on a date certain, everyone got a phone call and said, "Hey, go put your sign in your yard today, please." And so people on the way to work the next morning, suddenly, boom! There, there, his signs were everywhere, all over the area where he was running. Yard signs in that regard actually matter. Now, yard signs, a lot of people say are a waste of time, but a yard sign in a yard, not in a right-of-way, is actually a persuasive thing for people. Oh, I didn't realize Joe, my neighbor who I love, is voting for this guy. I guess I'm going to vote for him too because Joe's doing it. Um, it, it. It's a big deal. And I'm I'm delighted and in, in encouraged to see uh, that uh, Collins has grassroots traction enough to be able to get people short. Now, maybe Leffler does too, and they're holding off on a sign game. Uh, maybe they are. Um, and and there are a lot of people who would say, well, signs aren't a lot of – they're not really important, and, and I get that. But I think a sign in someone's yard is notable, and I don't see a lot of them for Leffler. She's having a hard time building up her grassroots because of the pandemic. She can't go door-to-door. She's somewhat at a disadvantage here, uh, but she does have a lot of money to spend. She's spending it, and Collins is going down in the polling, and she's going up in the polling, and so she has, she definitely has a chance, and I do get the sense that her campaign has turned around, but y'all, I'm sorry. I was an indigent criminal defense attorney because I had to be. Uh, When I was a lawyer for five, it's really six years, but for five years in Bibb County, you were required during those years, you had to. Uh, Represent indigent criminal defendants. And I've mentioned this before. I I had no choice in the matter. If I wanted to practice law, I had to do it. And Doug Collins was a lawyer, and his firm represented indigent criminal defendants, and, and he had to represent them. And I just don't like the idea of attacking a lawyer for representing a criminal indigent defendant because our Constitution requires that everyone has representation. And an indigent criminal defendant does not have that representation. The court must assign them a lawyer. Doug Collins was a very good lawyer, and he stepped up to fill the void to ensure that someone had legal representation. And he was doing his support his part to defend the Constitution. There are plenty of there are plenty of things you can criticize Doug Collins for. And I'm sure we will see those. And I wish the Leffler campaign would move on from this. Because I just, I find it unseemly to attack someone for daring to stand up for our constitutional system and represent someone uh, who is an indigent defendant and needed a lawyer. I just, I, I, that's just not, that's not something you attack someone for, for defending the constitution. It is Eric Erickson here, and I'm going to make some of you potentially angry. Uh, And that's okay, because uh, we need, the, the, the truth shall set you free. I'm going to play some audio because this is this is the big speech. This is the thing that, that rode him to the spotlight. This is the thing that, that made him famous and ultimately galvanized support for him to run for president. And it happened uh, on this day way back when.
5: Now, even as we speak, there are those who are preparing to divide us, the spin masters, the negative ad peddlers, who embrace the politics of anything goes. Well, I say to them tonight, there is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. The pundits, the pundits like to slice and dice our country into red states and blue states. Red states for Republicans, blue states for Democrats. But I've got news for them, too. We worship an awesome God in the blue states, and we don't like federal agents poking around in our libraries in the red states. We coach Little League in the blue states, and yes, we've got some gay friends in the red states are patriots who opposed the war in iraq and there are patriots who supported the war in iraq we are one people all of us pledging allegiance to the stars and stripes all of us defending the united states of america
0: i can leave that there now uh that is uh, barack obama's um speech at the Democratic National Convention, uh, July twenty seventh of two thousand four, to the Kerry Edwards uh, nomination. Uh, l- l- let me let me read you uh, again the key quote here: "There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is a United States of America. There is not a Black America and a White America and Latino America and Asian America. There is the United States of America." Wow. What happened to that guy? Because I remember the Barack Obama who ran for office in 2008 and told uh, his supporters to take guns to knife fights. I remember the Barack Obama who told Hispanic voters Republicans were their enemy. I remember the Barack Obama who vilified gun owners in the NRA as part of the problem. I remember Barack Obama who sued nuns and, and small businesses that were Christian to force them to kill kids. I remember uh, Barack Obama who organized a, a, a panel with inside, the, with inside the White House where you could turn in your neighbors for supposedly lying about Obamacare. I remember a Barack Obama who sent mail pieces uh, to people to let them know that their voters had voted Republican or hadn't voted at all. All of those things happened. Uh, the hagiography, the, hey, the, the, the sainthood of Barack Obama by the media, is gross. He was a divisive politician. I remember after one of the school shootings, Barack Obama came out and immediately in his presidential statement started attacking gun owners and the NRA and making it political while the bodies were still warm. And yet somehow or another, he is lionized as a uniter. It is always thus with the media narrative. George W. Bush was a divider. George W. Bush was was someone who tore apart the country. George W. Bush was someone that uh, it, it, people deservedly could hate. Barack Obama, no, no, he's a uniter. No, he wasn't. Barack Obama hired Linda Douglas from ABC News who encouraged people to turn in their neighbors if they were lying about Obamacare. Remember that they actually set up an email address where you could forward chain emails or or what your neighbors were saying about Obamacare. Remember in, in two thousand twelve they actually sent out mail pieces to people saying, Hey, your neighbor voted Republican. Your your neighbor's a Romney supporter. Did you know that? That was Barack Obama's campaign. It's very much like like the 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 worshipfulness of, of John Lewis, who is an American hero who we should praise, uh, but we should not leave out the partisanship there either. If anything, uh, I think history will long record that Barack Obama's administration Led and the Republican response to it led to the rise of Donald Trump. We would not have had Donald Trump but for Barack Obama, and that angers liberals when you point that out, but it's the truth. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson. If you would like to be a part of the program, the full number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. The hearing with uh, William Barr has been delayed because Jerry Nadler, The Democratic chairman of the House Judiciary Committee was in a car wreck headed over to the hearing. Minor car wreck. Um, Everybody is fine. And um, so they will get started. I I really I want to play part of the opening. I think when it gets started, because, you know, that that bar is just going to crush them. Well, I want to I want to get into politics here for a minute because there there's there's some troubling news, and I it involves the president's campaign. You should hear it from me and understand this this is a problem, but it's do, fixable. This is from Bloomberg News. President Trump is spending nearly all of his advertising money to hold states he won in 2016 playing a game of defense in areas a Republican incumbent should be able to count on. More than 92% of his state-based spending in the month of July is in states he won in 2016, according to a Bloomberg analysis of television advertising data compiled by advertising analytics. So for perspective here, the president is spending 92% of his ad dollars in states he won in 2016, which suggests he's not trying to expand his map or find alternative paths forward for victory. He is looking to just win the same states again. Now, that can be smart. Uh, it, it can actually be smart for the president to do something like that. Uh, but you got to keep in mind that uh, he's got to hold on to every single one of those states. Just about. I mean, the way let let me let me bring it up. Electoral College 2016. Uh, Googling this, uh, so the president won in 2016. And how many Electoral College votes did he actually get? Um, He won with 304 Electoral College votes. And he kind of won all of the necessary states. And he could have potentially won Colorado, potentially. Could have potentially won Nevada. uh, And he could have potentially won Virginia, although increasingly not likely. Could have won New Hampshire. This essentially suggests uh, that They don't see a path forward, and the president's got to win Michigan and Pennsylvania and Iowa and Wisconsin again. Now, Wisconsin, a lot of people are saying, oh, it's trending Democrat again. I don't think Wisconsin really is trending Democrat. When you look at the data in a presidential year, you're going to have increased turnout, and the president may be able to pick up Nevada. uh, But he shouldn't have to be running ads in places like Texas and Georgia, which he has been doing, uh, which suggests he's got fundamental problems there. Uh, So the realist in me suggests that the president of the United States does have some underlying problems. But when you look at the data again, and, and this is how it's fixable and curable for the president, the virus, the virus. If the president can mitigate the virus, if the virus starts to fade and there are some optimistic signs of that then the focus is going to be on an economic rebound. And if the focus is not on the spread of the virus, but on an economic rebound, that benefits the president tremendously because polling has consistently suggested that a majority of Americans, registered voters no less, not likely voters, but registered voters, and registered voters lean towards the Democrats. And so when you've got 54 to 56% of registered voters saying they would much prefer the president handle Uh, the economy than Joe Biden. That's actually really good for the president, if he can get a handle on the virus. Uh, And so the job of the media over the next couple of months is going to be to exacerbate tensions over the virus and fan the flames over the virus. And and I I suspect here's something we're going to have happen, is you're going to see as the virus begins to fade, remember, death is a lagging indicator by two to three weeks, you're going to start seeing the story shift now to deaths. But even then, if the virus is fading, as some people are predicting that it's fading and will definitely uh, be manageable and containable into August, then you're going to have a hard time keeping the story alive. In fact, the virus has gone down nationwide by about 1.8%. It is de escalating in Nevada, it is de escalating in Georgia. Uh, In fact, the states right now where it is on hold for certain, uh, where it is unchanged or slightly declined, Florida, Louisiana, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, Texas, Idaho, California, North Carolina, Iowa, Kansas, Minnesota, Ohio, Washington, Oregon, West Virginia, New York, Guam, Connecticut, Maine, uh, where it very much is decreasing is Arizona, Utah, the Virgin Islands, U.S. Virgin Islands, and Vermont. Notice the big narrative shift there. I mean, uh, Arizona had a a big surge and then a rapid decline. Utah didn't have a big surge, but it's already beginning to decline. Georgia's surge was not significant. Florida did have a big surge, but it's already declining. Louisiana starting to trend down again. Uh, Which states are seeing increases? Mississippi, Tennessee, Nevada, although Nevada arguably is in decline right now. Arkansas, Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Missouri, North Dakota, Wisconsin, New Mexico, Alaska, Nebraska, Maryland, Delaware, Kentucky, Virginia, Puerto Rico, Indiana, Illinois, Washington, D.C., Montana, Colorado, Rhode Island, Wyoming, South Dakota, Pennsylvania, Michigan, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Hawaii, and New Hampshire. Now, some of them aren't very significant, like uh, New Hampshire and Massachusetts, Virginia and Wyoming, even Montana, they're not really significant uptakes in the virus. And then you've got the states like Nevada that are starting to actually trend down, even though they're still listed as trending up uh, per capita. It's actually pretty significant that they're going down. And then in Georgia, you've got the situation where Georgia's uh, seven-day moving average and the 14-day window appears to show that Georgia is getting better. Uh, In fact, the 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 record high was July 6, 5,373, and we've gone down every day since. In the 14-day window, in fact, for those of you on the live stream, let me pull this up so you can see the see the graph here. It's it's pretty big deal that the the graph is showing that we had on July sixth five thousand three hundred seventy three cases, in July seventh four thousand eight hundred seventy, and then July eighth four thousand one hundred. Thirteen, July 9th, 4,070, we'll skip the weekend and go to July 13th, 4,006, and then July 14th, 3,355, July 16th, 3,195, and on and on down it goes. That's actually really good news and, and really encouraging data out there for the state. Now, some counties in the state are not doing well, but by and large, the state is doing what it needs to do, and the other states are as well. So if the virus fades, that gives the president of the United States a a real uh, incentive to be able to focus on the economy. The problem, of course, is what to do in the meantime. And the Republicans are squabbling amongst themselves about the stimulus and what to do with the stimulus and how much money to put into the stimulus. Here is Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa.
3: So we want to continue to help the unemployed but we want to encourage work. And we've learned a very tough lesson that when you pay people not to work, what do you expect? And so this payment will be adjusted so that we have additional payments to help people for approximately 70 to 75%
0: of their uh, income. So let me give you this from the Wall Street Journal. Senate Republicans rolled out a roughly $1 trillion coronavirus relief bill proposal Monday, launching a mad dash to reach a deal with Democrats on expiring unemployment payments and other aid disputes in the party's rival plans. The Republican plan cuts the current federal $600 weekly unemployment supplement to $200 a week through September when when the payment will then combine with state benefits to replace 70% of previous wages. Democrats have proposed continuing through January the current $600 a week supplement, which costs about $15 billion a week. The U.S. jobs market has partially rebounded since the unemployment rate went from 50-year lows to record highs early in the pandemic with employers adding 7.5 million jobs in May and June after cutting 22 million non-farm jobs the prior two months. But a recent increase in people seeking unemployment insurance signaled the recovery could be faltering as COVID-19 cases surge in the South and West, prompting new business closures. Senator McConnell billed the Republican proposal as the appropriate response to the toll the virus continues to take across the country. We have one foot in the pandemic and one foot in the recovery. The American people need more help. They need it to be comprehensive and they need it to be carefully tailored to this crossroad. That's what this Senate majority has assembled. Now, Democrats, of course, want the $600 a week payment through the end of the year. The problem with that is it is incentivizing people staying on the sidelines. And increasingly, you've got uh, employers saying this is not good. And it's not good because they're having trouble finding workers to staff up. So, for example, uh, I have been in several restaurants of late. I've been eating outside at all of them, haven't gone inside. And they are short-staffed. They're having trouble getting employees to come back. There have been uh, numerous incidents in the last several months where employees have gotten mad at employers for taking PPP because the employees were getting more money on unemployment. We have incentivized unemployment, which is a problem. Now, one of the big winners in this is the Payroll Protection Program, and it appears that it may very well be extended. And what one of the hangups with PPP is is do they want to allow more businesses into the program, or do they just want to um, do do they want to expand it? Republicans want to send another twelve hundred dollar check to the people who got the money in um, the spring phasing out for those with incomes over $75,000 in adjusted gross income for individuals, 112,500 friends, households, and 150,000 for married couples. Uh, some, however, of the Democrats want to give that $1,200 to everyone uh, and also expand it for uh, per child up to three children per family. The Republicans only wanted to do 500. Uh, I doubt, I, I seriously doubt that they are going to expand it to high income earners. And then Tim Scott wants to let businesses fully deduct restaurant meals this year up from a 50% deduction. In many states, in-person restaurant meals are closed or limited to prevent the spread of the virus. So this would incentivize uh, some of that. Senate Democrats want $430 billion for schools. The problem here is they're all spending money we don't have, even the Republicans. Bloomberg is out with a report today. Goldman Sachs is warning that we are devaluing the American currency to such a degree people are running off into gold reserves. And we may be making America uh, end the American uh, fiscal responsibility enough that the dollar is not a reserve currency for the world. That emboldens China. We've got to figure out a way to get back to fiscal responsibility. Our national debt is now about 80% GDP. That is not a good place for it to be. This is spinning that started under Barack Obama. It has escalated under Donald Trump. That is not a good place for any of this to be. And you're actually going to get probably a majority of Republicans or a significant minority of Republicans in the Senate and a a very large portion of Republicans in the House who vote against any stimulus plan because they're at this point concerned about the debt and the deficit. And they don't like uh, that we're not cutting other things. Now, in the past, there was an argument to be made that, you know what, we need to get this money out there. We need to help people. But at this point, it is also overwhelmingly the case that we got to do something to benefit people. And we're not necessarily benefiting people if we are bankrupting the country in the process. We're spending a lot of money, all Our national debt is over $23 trillion right now. And that puts us in a fiscally precarious position and our debt becomes a national security issue. Economists are starting to sound the alarm. And you got a lot of people in Washington who just can't believe it. And a lot of people in Washington who don't care. And a lot of people in Washington who really take the position, oh, well, China is going to, uh, they're going to dominate us anyway. We might as well go on and accept it. We we should not accept Chinese dominance. So I, I just would urge you all, to, if you know your representative or your senator, express concern. David Perdue here in Georgia is one of those who cares deeply about the debt and the deficit. And we're going to have to care about the issue. It is fundamentally going to undo us as a nation if we can't recognize that the debt and the deficit do actually matter. And it shouldn't just matter if there's a Democrat in the White House. It's got to matter across the board. Speaking of the stimulus, by the way, As they continue to deal with PPP, if you need to talk to – if you're a business and you need to talk to someone about getting into PPP or what can be done to help your business get access to capital, let me encourage you to reach out to our sponsor, First Liberty Building and Loan. The Frost family, they're active in politics. They're big in the faith community here in Georgia. They've been doing this since 1993. They are super people, and uh, they've they've done this. They've done it for years. I can't recommend them enough. FirstLibertyGA.com is their website. If you go to FirstLibertyGA.com today, you can apply online for PPP for the money available. Go on and get your application, and they're going to restore funding for PPP. Uh, You can talk to the Frost family. If you go to FirstLibertyGA.com, you can find the phone number. You can reach out to them and talk to them. But more importantly, if your business just needs access to capital, if you need a loan for your business beyond PPP, you want to grow your business, you need $10 million, go to FirstLibertyGA.com. Don't be short-sighted. Have a long-term vision for your company's success. And First Liberty Building alone wants to help you get that success. But you got to reach out to them. If you want to, FirstLibertyGA.com is who you need to talk to. Uh, Call the Frost family. Talk to them. They've been doing it since 1993. They know how to help small businesses become big businesses. And with everything right now so strained, with PPP and the like, they want to be able to help you. So FirstLibertyGA.com is the website. Go check them out. Talk to them. See what they can do to help you. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877 eric 877-973-7425 in Southwest Georgia. The Southwest Georgia Regional Medical Center is going to close. The Randolph County Hospital Authority, which oversees the hospital, voted in favor of closure. Within a few months, our financial situation would be such that we would not be able to meet payroll, the chairman of the hospital authority said. The facilities in Cuthbert... Uh, It had been operating on the brink for years and before COVID-19, but once COVID-19 hit, uh, hospitals make most of their money off elective surgeries, and they had to shut down those, and so they're going to have to close it all down. Uh, Now, it's been managed by Phoebe Putney Memorial Hospital since 96, uh, and Phoebe is going to help uh, restaff some. And uh, try to find r- jobs for fifty of the employees impacted by the closure. We're gonna see more of this. Uh, hospitals being impacted here in in Middle Georgia. The CEO of Navison Health has retired. I feel like I should use air quotes for that. And I, I hear there is uh, there are some financial problems there. Several people who work there have told me their concerns there uh, about hospital finance. They're they're okay, um, but but their reserves are being hurt. And elective surgeries, there are also problems. Now, let me clear up a term, one term for you, elective surgery. Um, Elective surgery does not mean like plastic surgery. Elective surgery is any surgery that can be scheduled and is not an immediate emergency uh, necessity. So your gallbladder uh, removal is an elective surgery. You're repairing your hernia is an elective surgery, your cataracts an elective surgery, uh, because you can schedule it on a date and go to the hospital on that day, uh, as opposed to you've been in a car wreck or you've had a stroke and a rush to the hospital or a heart attack or something like that. Those are not elective. Um, so th- th- that's the big difference. It's not just people hear elective surgery and they think i oh, plastic surgery or something. I, it, it's one of those those things. No, it's more than that. And a lot of that stuff has just been put on hold because of the virus. And that's where hospitals make their money. Hospitals don't really make their money on emergency care and indigent care and stuff like that. Uh, They got to make their money on all this other stuff. And they haven't been able to. So smaller hospitals are having trouble and are closing. And so we're going to see more of these. We need to be mindful of this. Uh, Thankfully, there are robust hospital systems in Georgia that can pick up some of the slack, but it is going to strain rural areas, and it further and further puts rural parts of this country at odds with urban parts of this country in ways that are not necessarily sustainable. However, I do wonder if given the viral spread in urban areas, if that, that might incentivize people to move into exurban, away from even suburban areas, exurban and rural areas of the country and rebuild their lives there. But they're gonna need access to good infrastructure to be able to do stuff like that. And that doesn't exist out there either right now. Hello and welcome, it is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson show across the state of Georgia, around the nation on that series of tubes known as the internet, the phone number, if you would like to be a part of the program. I, what is it, I, total brain fart. <laughs> Four no eight seven seven nine seven Eric. Eight seven seven nine seven three seven four two five. Eight seven seven nine seven three seven four two five. Uh so the protests are still going on out there. At this point, no one even knows what they're protesting. Dan Crenshaw was on Fox talking about uh the plan of the protesters. I want to play this audio for you. There is a lot of fear, there's a lot of stoking, so I I encourage people to calm down
6: and take a step back and look at the big picture here. What are we seeing? I think fundamentally what we're seeing is a hostage crisis. You have a lot of violent left-wing mobs, Antifa mobs, saying that if you don't give us power, if you don't give our political wing, the Democratic Party, power, we're going to keep terrorizing your cities. Now why do I say that their political wing is the Democratic Party? Well, because I find it interesting that Democrats cannot for the life of them condemn Antifa and these violent mobs. All right, whether it's whether it's sugarcoating the behavior as mostly peaceful or Jerry Nadler saying Antifa's a myth. We've remember Eric Swalwell said he's never heard of Antifa. Remember the governor of Washington refused to even acknowledge that Chaz existed at first? There's a pattern here. And here's another thing. You look at words from Nancy Pelosi. What does she say? She says you know, this is all Trump's fault. If we were in power, none of this left-wing terrorism would be happening right now. So their messaging is coming from different angles, but it is very well coordinated. And it's, and it's this. They're going to hold you hostage. They're going to hold you, the American people, hostage until you give them power one more thing about this. How do I know that they just want power? Because normally protesters have a, some kind of demand, right? There's something that would stop their protest, you know maybe a policy change, but that never happens. Yeah. Even when Portland defunds their police, it doesn't stop the mob. They continue because it's power that they're after.
0: That is right. It's power that they're after. Uh, on this day in 1793, Maximilian rose Uh, who had been the leader of the Jacobins, got elected to France's Committee on Public Safety. And thus began the reign of terror in France. 17,000 people were executed by guillotine. And a year later, he himself, exactly a year later, in 1794, uh, was led up to the guillotine and his head removed we are seeing the radicals on the left uh, try to enact their version of the French Revolution here in this country. And it is all about power. And it is philosophically something that you've got to understand. If you go back to the American Revolution, and I'm a broken record on this point, I've, I've said it before, but you really genuinely do need to understand this point. Contrary to uh, the revisions of the 1619 Project in the New York Times, and in fact, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones has come out and admitted that it's not history, um, it is essentially revised journalism, storytelling, um, it, it is with an agenda, it's not actually to paint an accurate history of what happened, at least she's now admitting it. The American revolutionaries, the founders of this country, believed that they were British citizens. And the British Parliament didn't believe they were British citizens. They just believed they were colonists. They they were something less than citizens. Well, the founders believed they were British citizens because their grandfathers had fought in the Glorious Revolution that established the English Bill of Rights of 1688. And they were entitled to things like free speech and free press and no taxation without representation and things like that. And the English parliament refused to give them the rights they thought they had. So what the colonists decided they had to do is they had to launch a revolution and throw off Great Britain, not to establish something new but to obtain what they thought they were already entitled to. That's why in the Declaration of Independence, it it talks about that, that they are entitled to certain unalienable rights, that government is designed to protect those rights. They thought they had those protections from Great Britain. They clearly did not. Therefore, they need a new government to secure what they already should have had. It was a very, and I don't mean this politically in saying it, uh, it was a, a very conservative revolution. It was a revolution not about obtaining something new. It was a revolution about obtaining something they thought they were already entitled to that they should have already had. That is very important to understand because it stands in contrast to the French Revolution. The French Revolution was a progressive revolution. The French Revolution intended to throw off the shackles of the ancient regime, as they called it, the the old monarchy, they wanted something new. They wanted to establish a new order. The Americans did not want to establish a new order. They thought they had to establish a new government to preserve the old order that they thought they had. The French revolutionaries thought they needed a new order and so needed an entirely new system. They needed a republic, very much like what the United States established. Uh, and they needed to get rid of the anchors of the old society, so they had to get rid of the church. The church became institutes of reason. They had to get rid of the monarchy, so they killed off the king. Uh, They had to get rid of the the nobility, so they killed off the nobility. They had to get rid of all of those standards, and what you saw is a very morally relativistic crowd form in the French Revolution uh, that began a reign of terror, and ultimately the people tired of it, and got rid of them and ultimately went back to monarchy for a while with Napoleon, Napoleon III uh, and, and Louis Philippe. And it was a disheveled, disordered mess, but it was all about the desire to get to something new. They didn't really know what that new thing looked like. They were driven by enlightenment ideals Uh, But it was a very progressive revolution, progress beyond the old, whereas the Americans wanted the old and needed a new form of government to preserve the old. What we're seeing in the streets right now are Antifa anarchists who want something new. They want something they're not quite sure what, a socialist revolution of some kind, uh, and to do so, they need intellectual luminaries to reassure them that this country was predicated on bad things. That's why the 1619 Project is so important to these people because it rewrites American history so that they can justify that America has always been bad, has always been racist, and therefore must always be upended. Because if you can say that America was always bad, the pollution of that badness descends into the rot of of society across the board. It infects the American Constitution as an instrument of racism. Never mind that the founders put certain compromises in there to ensure that uh, th- that uh, slavery would ultimately deteriorate in this country, including banning the international importation of slaves after the year 1800, uh, not giving the Southern states the power they wanted by restricting them with the Three-Fifths Compromise, uh, spreading out uh, support of states through the Electoral College, things like that to undermine the power of the slave states overall. You even. Had people within the slave states arguing that ultimately slavery was going to have to go. It wasn't sustainable. And you must rewrite all of that and delete it from history in order to make a moral case against America from an American's perspective. That's what the 1619 project does. And now you've got these white hipsters who live in their parents' houses, uh, who have been deprived of economic success in large part because they decided to go get degrees in puppetry arts instead of something sustainable. And their parents patted them on the back and told them how wonderful they were and doing it all and gave them participation trophies along the way. And now they've decided to tear down the very country that allowed them to succeed if they chose to succeed because they didn't choose to succeed. I mean, you know, success doesn't come to everyone, but success certainly can come, or more success can come to people who uh, have a stick to it this nature about it and put their mind to it and, and want to engage in society in certain ways. These people don't want to do that. They're, they're so busy wanting to tear down what they have. They can't even appreciate the opportunities they have. They don't, they don't understand it. They don't recognize it. And so they're sustaining it. And now you've got to a point with these protests on the streets where even the NAACP has come out and said, we, we got no idea what these protests are about. It's a bunch of young white people who have co-opted the name of George Floyd and are wrecking cities around America, degrading everybody's quality of life, doing what they're doing. And the reason no one recognizes what they're doing is it's now you need to understand this. It's not about affecting change in the name of justice. It is about the acquisition of power. It is about the desire of some to overthrow what exists and build something that does not exist. More importantly, it is about striking fear in the hearts of others, intimidation and harassment. I got to read you a thread of a protester in Washington, D.C., the privileged elite in Washington, D.C., who decided to protest. And in deciding to protest, held people hostage on the streets of Georgetown in Washington, D.C. This is a tweet thread from someone named Julia Clark. And she writes about what happened in Georgetown. She writes tonight, she meant last night, what happened in Georgetown last night. Last night, concerned citizens of DC led a siren noise pollution protest where we blocked off streets in Georgetown. The police presence was heavy. As we blocked off streets, we demanded that people turn around. This was a minor inconvenience for this affluent white neighborhood as we blocked streets certain drivers got annoyed and attempted to maneuver their way around us this particular white woman tried to cut through a gas station me and a couple of other protesters should be a couple of other protesters and i stood in front of her car and demanded she turn around instead she steps on the gas in the video above she has already attempted to run us over multiple times and I had moved from the front of the car to the side and was banging on her window, screaming at her to stop. Throughout this whole thing, the police are doing nothing. Finally, police come, but instead of arresting this woman or asking for her ID, registration, etc., they turn towards us and begin pushing us. We are begging them to arrest this woman who just tried to run over protesters repeatedly. Keep in mind, this is the woman they surrounded, would not let her out of her car, would not let her proceed. They're banging on her window. She's just trying to get home, but somehow now they become the victims. Police continue to refuse to arrest this white woman, claiming that since she stayed on the scene only because we were blocking her from leaving, she did not have intent and could not be charged or arrested. After 40 minutes, police finally asked for her ID. She claims she's too scared to give it to him because the protesters might take it. In the meantime, myself and other witnesses give our information to the police. After all this time pushing protesters and protecting the violent white woman, the police department let her drive home, shoving and grabbing protesters who tried to stop her. Police treated us like threats when she was clearly dangerous. I'm exhausted. My hands are shaking. I am angry. As the nation returns to complacency, we are still out here. We are still being killed. We are still being brutalized. For every second... Our nation, forget about us. We get angrier. We deserve more. We need more. Police didn't do, I can't use the profanity there. This is a hate crime. Find this woman. This is an entitled, spoiled brat who she and the protester surrounded a woman who just wanted to go home. They blocked her path from trying to go home. When the woman tried to cut through a gas station, they surrounded her car. The woman tried to drive away, and guess what? She was willing to drive away with these people clinging to her car, and suddenly they're the victim. No, they're not the victim. They are a menace to society, and now they're trying to claim that they are victims. These are spoiled children who want access to power. They should not be given access to power. This is an issue the president should amplify. It is clear that these people are going to stick around and disrupt as best they can major cities around the country, and the president and his team should be emboldened enough to stand up to them and make them a campaign issue, because this is a campaign issue that will resonate in the suburbs. As more and more Americans are out now feeling like they've got to buy guns to protect themselves because the police can't uh, protect them. The protesters are coming to their cities, disrupting their cities, uh, vandalizing businesses. Uh, the, The local Democratic officials don't have the backs of the police officers. They're prosecuting and harassing police officers for doing their job. This is a winnable issue for the president on top of economic growth. If he can contain the virus, he can take these issues and he can sail away to victory but he's gotta contain the virus. Speaking of people buying guns, you may go out and buy a gun. And if you wanna buy a gun, you're gonna wanna upgrade your gun to awesomeness. You wanna turn your gun into a work of art. I cannot recommend enough. My friends at True Precision, they are a sponsor of this program, but more importantly, I'm actually a customer of theirs. I have put my gun on Instagram, it is gorgeous. And we're going to upgrade the trigger on it next. I'm so excited about that. Y'all, it is genuinely a work of art, this gun. I I, I cannot express. I've shown it on the live stream as well. And it's a Glock 43X. It is my concealed carry weapon. Uh, and gotta, I let my concealed carry permit lapsed. I got to get it back so I can carry the gun again. But it's great. Um, and I you can go to true-precision.com as their website. You can pick out the slider of your choice. You can pick out the barrel of your choice. You can make upgrades to your gun, not just Glock. They got other models as well, other manufactured guns. You go to true-precision.com, look at their parts. They can ship the parts to you. You can replace the slide or the barrel yourself. It's not hard. If I can do it, you can do it. Trust me, if I can do it, you can do it. But you got to go to true-precision.com today to make it happen. And then when you check out, put ERIC as your, as your checkout code, E-R-I-C-K, and you'll get 10% off. It is worth it. You will turn your gun not just into an awesome gun, but a work of art. You will go to the gun range. People say, whoa, where did you get that gun? And you'll tell them, true precision, and it'll be worth it, and you will love it. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. And I want to go over to the House Judiciary Committee is right now hearing testimony from William Barr. Uh, Jim Jordan, the ranking Republican, currently speaking.
2: And maybe most importantly, and we're going to talk about this in our side of questioning. I want to thank you for defending law enforcement, for pointing out what a crazy idea this defund the police I- policy, whatever you want to call it is, and standing up for the rule of law. And frankly, we have a video we want to show that gets right to this point. Can we play that video, please?
0: Well, now they're trying to play a video. Yeah, You always jump into these awkward moments. Well, we may come back to this. Uh, they're, they're trying to do the grilling of William Barr. I, I don't know that it's going to be successful Uh, Jerry Nadler tried to tear into him to begin with Uh, you can get a sense of just how partisan this whole thing is gonna be Doug Collins was right the outcome is foreordained as far as the Democrats are concerned here's Nadler in part of his opening statement
2: these two objectives are more at risk than at any time in modern history your tenure has been marked by a persistent war against the department's professional core in an apparent attempt to secure favors for the president Others have lost sight of the importance of civil rights laws. But now we see the full force of the federal government brought to bear against citizens demonstrating for the advancement of their own civil rights. There is no precedent for the Department of Justice to actively seek out conflict with American citizens under such flimsy pretext or for such petty purposes. 150 years later, we are again at a pivotal moment in our nation's history, Mr. Barr. We are confronted with a global pandemic that has killed 150,000 Americans and infected more than 16 million worldwide. We are coming to grips with a civil rights struggle long swept under the rug, if not outright ignored, by our government. We are, as a nation, witnessing the federal government turn violently on its own people. And although responsibility for the government's failure to protect The health safety and constitutional rights of the american people belong squarely to president trump he could not have done this alone he needed help and after he finished utterly humiliating his first attorney general he found you in your time at the department you have aided and abetted the worst failings of the president let us recount just some of the decisions that has left that have left us deeply concerned about the department of justice First, under your leadership, the department has endangered Americans and violated their constitutional rights by flooding federal law enforcement into the streets of American cities against the wishes of the state and local leaders of those cities to forcefully and unconstitutionally suppress dissent.
0: Yep. Kind of the the, the 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 deck is stacked against William Barr today. With that, that's Nadler's opening statement in part. Uh, Barr, of course, is going to eat them alive uh, because he's smarter than any of them, and and he also recognizes this is Kabuki theater. That is ultimately what's happening here. Is it, it's the dog and pony show uh, that the the Democrats are trying to uh, draw blood and score points because they need the support of the radical leftists who are the mobs in the streets of Portland and the like. Have y'all heard the uh, Associated Press report of what the protesters are doing? Now, it doesn't really paint either side in a good light, uh, but you can kind of understand what the Homeland Security guys are having to put up with in light of what the protesters are doing. We should talk about this when we come back. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show, the full number if you want to be a part of the program, 877-973-7425. The protests continue in Portland, Oregon and elsewhere around the country, picking up some steam. Mike Balsamo is an Associated Press reporter who bunkered down with the federal agents in Portland who were inside the courthouse. And I want to read you some of his tweets. I spent the weekend inside the Portland Federal Courthouse with U.S. Marshals. Mortars were being fired off repeatedly. Fireworks and flares shot into the lobby. Frozen bottles, concrete, cans, and bouncy balls regularly whizzed over the fence at high speed. We wanted to show you a look inside the protest from the perspectives out in the crowd with protesters and inside the courthouse with federal officers. It was an eye opening experience to see it firsthand. I watched as injured officers were hurled, hauled inside. In one case, commercial fireworks came over so fast an officer didn't have time to respond. It burned through his sleeves and he had bloody gashes on both forearms. Another had a concussion from being hit in the head with a mortar. The lights inside the courthouse had to be turned off for safety and the lights from high-powered lasers bounced across the lobby almost all night. The fear is palpable. Three officers were stuck were struck in the last few nights and still haven't regained their vision. When we went out inside the fence line, someone fired off a mortar. It exploded inches away from us, but no one was hurt. A large bonfire had been started in the street and people were aiming fireworks through the fire at officers behind the fence. It was almost 2.30 a.m. then. The officers outside the Portland courthouse had been hit by an array of objects from canned food to ball bearings fired from slingshots. On Saturday night, a Department of Homeland Security officer was soaked completely in orange paint thrown from one of the paint cans, later seized by authorities. It was clear USMS tactical decisions this weekend were very thought out. Even after a large hole was cut in the fence on Saturday night, they made a decision not to go out because it could escalate tensions. They cleared the area only after a huge section of the fence was pulled down. It was really striking talking to the deputy U.S. Marshals who have been working to protect the courthouse for weeks. Many are from Portland. They have friends who peacefully protest during the day, but at night they say demonstrations are hijacked by agitators set on violence. A deputy U.S. marshal told me I'm worried for my life every time I walk outside the building. And that feeling extends widely. They are offended by being told to get out of Portland. They live there. They work daily to take violent criminals off the street. It's their city too. Everyone I spoke to this weekend acknowledged there were different groups of protesters. By day, it's peaceful protesters who want to affect meaningful change. But by the middle of the night, nearly all the people are gone and the violence starts to pick up. One thing is clear. There's no plan for the feds to retreat. Those protecting the building feel a personal and professional duty to protect the courthouse. Many raised the same point. The courthouse stands for justice for all people. They're not going anywhere. On the outside of the fence, my colleague, uh, what's his name? Uh, Gillian Flaccus was talking to folks who say the tactics by federal officers are going too far. Many say they want true criminal justice reform and aren't there to be destructive. Some have even said their message is being co-opted by agitators. Here's the problem. The message has been co-opted by agitators, but what did they think was going to happen? And they're not protesting the agitators. This This is important to note. The people who are protesting peacefully during the day, they're not standing up to denounce the protesters. They're not engaged in a way that makes it clear they're not with the protesters. Do you know, I mean, just just, just take this as an example. When a Republican anywhere says anything dumb, you have a local Republican city councilman who says something racist? Every Republican, from the other councilman on up to the President of the United States, is expected by the media to denounce that person. You got a Republican member of Congress who says something people think is ridiculous. Every member of Congress is expected to distance themselves publicly, and and run to the nearest reporter to say, "I disown this person." When the President tweets something ridiculous, every Republican in Congress is expected to rush to the nearest reporter and say, "I no, no, I I disagree." When a group of protesters are hijacked by agitators, and those agitators are then uh, I- able to hijack the agitation and hijack the uh, the hijack the crowd and and take over the protest, the protesters should have to stand up and denounce them. The protesters should be protesting them as well. The protesters should be denouncing those activists who are hijacking it. Kennedy Verrett, that I'm reading now from the, the AP report, Ken, Kennedy Verrett, a composer and music teacher, has been tear gassed twice and was ready to go to home. He had, he had to be up early the next day to teach piano lessons, but planned to be back for another night. When you are sent to protect property, he said of the agents, trailing off. My ancestors were once property. No one protected them. Tear gas is nothing when you have lived in America as a black man for forty years. Somewhere a bell tower chimed midnight, even though it was only twelve, even though it was twelve thirty-eight a.m. And a trumpet plaintively played the taps as munitions whizzed through the air. The whole world seemed upside down. It was 2.30 a.m. A large bonfire was burning in front of the courthouse. Protesters were nose-to-nose with federal agents. A woman with a megaphone screamed obscenities through the wire. Oh, yeah, that, that's, that's great. Tear gas canisters bounced and rolled in the street. Their payload fizzled out in the air before protesters picked them up and hurled them back over the fence at the agents who held their ground. A woman weaved through the crowd of the few hundred people who remained and told someone on the phone, we've reached some kind of standoff, I think. When the federal agents finally came, they came with force. A line of agents marched in lockstep down 3rd Street, pushing the crowd in front of them with tear gas and pepper pellets. People scattered in small groups roamed the downtown as tear gas choked the air. In less than two hours, it would be daylight. I finally get outside at 7 a.m. after being in the building since 3 p.m. the day prior, and I look east. and I'm like, oh, the world's normal over there, and people are driving to work, and the city's clean and functioning, said the deputy U.S. marshal. And I look out on the street, and it looks like downtown Baghdad. The battle over, the agents and demonstrators gather their things and headed to bed, protesters and protectors sleeping in the same city, perhaps even on the same street, resting for the next night's fight. For at nightfall, it would begin again. Where are the protesters protesting the agitators? I mean, they say repeatedly in this report. They say repeatedly, these protesters, that they're upset that it's the agitators who are showing up at night and making this all bad, that they just want to peacefully protest. And yet you have people who show up at night and want to burn it down. You have people at night who want to to tear down the courthouse. If the Republicans were doing this, every Republican would be expected to denounce the agitators. Instead, the protesters are given a pass, and the media largely covers for them. Um, you need need to, to hear this. I need to read you this thread from Alex Griswold, uh, with the Washington or with, with the free beacon, because I think he makes a, a very, very good point when it comes to how the media is handling this. Let me read you this thread of his. Imagine if so many Tea Party rallies had devolved into arson and assault and murder that you could barely keep track of it all and ask yourself how much the media would have cared if they were mostly peaceful. The starkest double standard, in my opinion, is the peaceful open carrying during a protest gets only passing notice when three months ago it was framed as virtually terroristic in and of itself and, again, was frequently criticized in a Tea Party context. And imagine, too, if the reaction to the violence, big swaths of the conservative intelligency, including self-styled centrists, proclaimed their view that property damage and arson and theft are not actually violent, dictionary and common sense be damned. And then there's the reaction from major GOP representatives and conservatives ranging from no it's a myth it's not happening to well it's Obama's fault because that's what the media is doing the media here which uh maligned the tea party remember the tea party uh the during 2009 with the the as the tea party was getting uh, uh up and running to protest Obamacare And they were showing up at town halls. The Democrats were trying to hide from them. And they were peacefully asking questions, putting these people on the spot. There were seven arrests during that time. And six of them were union organizers who were trying to stir stir up violence. It wasn't the Tea Party activists. And yet the Tea Party activists were regularly maligned by the media as racist, bigots, and violent. Here now come a group of protesters who were regularly at night being taken over by activists, by agitators, by thugs, by violence, and uh, major congressional Democrats say it's Donald Trump's fault or it doesn't really exist or it's not happening. The media says it's mostly peaceful protests. The media covers for these people. The media lies about what's going on. They they paint a false picture of it. They want to protect the protesters. Just a few months ago, protesters who wanted to have businesses reopen were maligned by the media, attacked by the media as 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 uh, violent people for openly carrying their firearms. The the media was attacking them for contributing to the spread of the virus, and on and on it goes. It is a double standard in the press and it is violent. We on a daily basis are hearing that these are peaceful protests. Yet here are Associated Press reporters who note that during the daytime, there are peaceful protests in Oregon, but at night when the sun sets, they turn violent. And many of the peaceful protesters leave and it's the agitators who come. The peaceful protesters aren't expected to denounce them. The peaceful protesters aren't expected to stand up to them in, in the way that, you know, in the, in the Tea Party days, or with any Republican, as I mentioned, if they say something crazy, uh, every Republican, every Tea Party activist was supposed to denounce them. Not here. The media gives them a pass. There is so much of a double standard. It is understandable why so many people distrust the media these days. It is understandable why so many people don't think the media is giving a fair hearing to events of the world and why the media has picked a side and is part of the resistance against the president. It is true and it is accurate that this is happening. It is true and it is accurate. There is a double standard. It is true and accurate that these protests at night turn violent. And it is true and accurate that the media has picked a side and does want a winner, and that winner is not the president. And the president can capitalize on all of this. He's got to contain the virus, which overshadows everything. The story of the virus, the daily news of the virus, it's not going away. But this is happening, too. In Washington, D.C., you've got protesters trying to find a woman who tried to flee from them. They want her shamed. They want her punished. you got to stand up to these people. They are bullies and thugs. And as they spread, and by the way, I think they're being emboldened by the media to spread. When the media denies they even exist, when the media denies there's violence, when the media denies what is happening at night, when the media denies what you see in the Associated Press report, and when the media blames the president for an escalation of violence as opposed to Antifa, and when the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee says, oh, Antifa is not even real, the president can capitalize on this in the suburbs. The president has a winning argument on this issue. The president can make a case. He should make that case. There are opportunities there for the president. There are opportunities there for his supporters. There are opportunities there to use this issue as We get past the virus and he starts to reopen the economy. Here are people standing in the way of our economic success. Then they play victim as they're burning down courthouses. He's got a message on this issue and the Democrats are gonna overplay their hand on this if they're not careful. The Democrats, if they really wanna win in November, they gotta be careful of these people and they shouldn't be denying reality and that they are gives the president an advantage when it comes to November. Before I go to commercial break, you're probably gonna, you'll hear Chris Burns' voice. But I I don't do enough because he has his own ad here on the show that everybody hears. But I want to talk to you real quick about dynamic money because as the stimulus plan comes up and as uh, people are a little bit nervous about what's coming forward with the economy and slow economic growth, you probably need to sit down with someone who's going to give you sound advice and not try to sell you something. There are a lot of financial advice firms out there, a lot of people you can go to who want to sell you stuff. And, and they purport to want to help you. They purport to want to be your friend. They purport to want to give you good advice. But really, they've got products to sell. Annuities, life insurance, uh, stock commissions, things like that. You need a financial advisor who's in it for you, not in it to sell you something. And Dynamic Money does that. That's Chris Burns' company. He's a guest host on the program. Dynamic Money is who I use. And I used them before I started this program. I have used them for more than a year. Through Dynamic Money, my wife and I have learned how to build better budgets. We have learned how to consolidate debt, pay off debt, refinance our house to get money out, to pay off credit cards, to start building up savings in a savings account, to build up an emergency fund, to save three months of salary, to give me more flexibility in my job. We've done all of this with the help of of Dynamic Money. They do not sell products. They do not work on commission. They are fee-based entirely. And so the advice you get is the advice you need. Think of dynamic money as a uh, primary care physician for your finances. The folks at dynamic money, you give them all your information, you give them your bank stuff, give them your credit card stuff, give them your insurance money or your your insurance statements. And what they do is they say, oh, your insurance is this. We can get you a better deal over at this company. They don't take a commission for it. They just keep up on the rates. Right. So they say, you should cancel your car insurance with this company. Get it over here. You can get the same thing for less. That'll save you a hundred bucks a month. Now take that hundred bucks a month and, and put it into this. Okay. We can refinance your house and that'll save you $300 a month. And you can get some equity out of your house. You can pay off these three credit cards. You should do that. That'll then free up about $1,000 a month. You can take that $1,000 a month and put it into your emergency fund as well. They teach you all of that stuff. It, it's stuff I never learned growing up. It's stuff they know they do well. They also will manage your 401k if you want them to, and that will be commissioned. Uh, they take a fee. It's a standard fee that ever, everyone who manages your 401k takes, but they do a really good job. They're in it for you. They're not in it to tell you something. I cannot recommend them enough. They've helped my wife and me get out of debt go to dynamicmoney.com. That is their website. I genuinely recommend dynamic money. I am a client of theirs. I am a customer. They have helped us save money. They can help you save money as well. Dynamicmoney.com is their website. Can't thank them enough for sponsoring the program. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. Well, we're at the end of the show, so I'm not even going to take your phone calls. Uh, Here in Macon, where I am, uh, the mayor of Macon, I mentioned, has vetoed the mask mandate. He says it's not enforceable. Um it, it is, it, it's and he's right. Uh essentially, the governor of the state, in his order that allows uh some restraint, it sets forth the mandates of what the state and the cities can impose says the cities can't be more restrictive or less restrictive than what the state has put in place. And in so doing, uh, he has set up a situation where he's um, deputized sheriff's deputies to enforce his order. So a sheriff's deputy cannot enforce an order that's more restrictive than the governor's order. The governor has no mask mandate. The city of Macon, the city of Atlanta, the city of Savannah and others have put in mask mandates. And the sheriff in County can't enforce it. So the mayor vetoed it and it wasn't worth a, a court fight. They would probably lose. The governor is trying to negotiate with the mayor of Atlanta on a settlement of his issue with her. And his big issue with her really had a lot more to do with uh, shutting down businesses. And not wanting the, the mayor to send mixed signals that could potentially shut down businesses. And this is that we're going to continue to have some squabbling over this issue uh, here in Georgia on exactly what to do, where to go, and and how to set things up. Um, and and I, I just I'm I think I think there's going to be some resolution uh, with the governor and the mayor. And I in my suspicion I, I have this I don't have this on authority at all. But my suspicion is we are probably going to see the governor be a little more forceful on masks. I don't know that he will mandate it, but be a little more forceful in trying to get people to wear masks. But it is very notable, and the governor is pointing this out, that no city in which they've done a mask mandate have they issued any citations. These the cities aren't really mandating. They're doing exactly what the governor's been doing, urging people to wear them without actually mandating them. And I think that's the right way to do it. Um, You don't want to turn people into lawbreakers for stuff like this, whether you think it's worth wearing them or not. You know, I've got a bigger concern here on the people who just don't take the virus seriously at all. And whether you if you don't say, take, for example, my kids, we've got to decide whether we want to do online learning for the first quarter of the school year or not. And my kids very much want to go back to school. But, you know, my wife's got lung cancer. I've got clots in my lungs. We are both high risk for the virus and high risk for the virus uh, going poorly. And if there are people in my kid's school who are in families that don't take it seriously, that believe it's some sort of conspiracy, and so they're not operating in such a way as to keep themselves safe, they could potentially bring the virus in and get my kids sick who then bring it home and get us sick. And it it goes beyond worrying about my kids getting the virus to their, their emotional and mental fragility if they then get us sick because they got sick at school because there was a kid in school whose family wasn't responsible in doing what they needed to do. These are things everybody has to think about, and there are no easy answers to them. How do you do this? We need to get our kids back in school, but how do you do it safely? And it depends on the cooperation of a bunch of people who think it's a government conspiracy or some such, and so have no interest in taking any of it seriously, even for the sake of their neighbor. You're supposed to love your neighbor, but when you think it's a government conspiracy, you really don't care enough to do that, and that's a problem.